Let's pray. We ask our Father that you would open the eyes of our hearts so that we might know the hope to which you have called us, the riches of your glorious inheritance in the saints and the incomparable greatness of your power by which you raised Christ Jesus our Lord from the dead. Amen. Under British Prime Minister John Major, Michael Hesseltine was his deputy between 1995 and 1997. And when asked in an interview if he was religious, Hesseltine said this, I think I'd describe myself as a prepared-to-be-convinced agnostic. The journalist probed a little further, wanting to know what might convert him. And in classic politician speak, he said, a more imminent approach of the central issues. Is that what you call death? The journalist asked him. That's what I was thinking of, said Hesseltine. That is a central issue. And of course, Hesseltine is right. But one day we shall all die, and that makes death pretty central. And though fixation with death is morbid, it would be foolish not to consider what happens after death. No matter how long you live, the time after death is always infinitely longer. Many say that death is the end. Their motto is eat, drink and be merry, for tomorrow we die. And as a way of life, that can work. But for it to work effectively, you have to keep yourself drunk, delusional and totally self-absorbed. Or if you think about it for a bit, if you think beyond yourself for a moment, it will surely lead you to despair. Bertrand Russell is typical of many a thinking atheist who logically ends up in despair. He looks life squarely in the face and comes to the following conclusion. He says, we stand on the shores of an ocean, crying to the night and the emptiness. Sometimes a voice answers out of the darkness, but it's the voice of one drowning, and in a moment the silence returns. And though such thoughts are realistic, they're also really quite depressing. So much so that many will instead choose to cling to just about any belief in an ongoing existence. Reincarnation is one of those possibilities. And though you may return as a cockroach, at least it promises an afterlife. And for that reason alone, people will want to believe it, despite there being no evidence for it whatsoever. It's no wonder then that most people don't even want to think about death. It poses awkward questions and it leaves most people grasping at straws or denying reality. And yet, into this anxious confusion, the Christian gospel rings out a glorious message of certain hope. Christ is risen and death is defeated. Christ's resurrection is the absolute guarantee that we who trust in him will one day rise with him. With him we shall live forever in a renewed and a perfect creation. And this is not pie in the sky, and nor is it speculative theology. Our resurrection body and our eternal future will be as physical as Christ was 
when he rose from the dead. Therefore we shall live with him in a physical kingdom, in a physical world. If heaven means living on a cloud, as a disembodied spirit playing the harp in a white robe, then I don't find anything attractive about that at all. Such a vision is totally unappealing. Fortunately, it's a caricature, and scripture teaches nothing like it. The resurrection promises a future much better than that. But the resurrection is not just about our future. The resurrection also makes a real difference as to, as to how we live our lives in the here and now. In Corinth, it certainly made a difference. Some, for example, were persuaded that there was no resurrection of the dead. As far as they were concerned, they had reached the heights of spiritual exaltation because they spoke in tongues. They thought themselves to be already as spiritual as they could be. They were convinced that eternal life couldn't get any better than their own experience. For them, death was merely an opportunity to rid themselves of their body, which they perceived as either irrelevant or even evil. Their mistaken beliefs about resurrection undoubtedly made a difference as to how they lived their lives. Some punished their bodies in false asceticism, wrongly thinking that the body was somehow evil. It's not. Unworthy of eternal glory and a hindrance to their soul. Whilst others indulged their bodies, believing that what they did in their mortal bodies had no relevance to their eternal future. Either way, their thinking was flawed. But it wasn't just that their thinking was faulty. This was a rejection of the Gospel. For to deny the resurrection is to deny the Gospel. And to deny the Gospel is to deny Christ. If we don't believe that Jesus rose bodily from the dead, if we don't expect to rise bodily with him, then it will affect not only how we live our lives now, it will also jeopardise our eternal future. Now you may be aware that there are some today who identify as Christians and yet deny the physical resurrection. I'm embarrassed to say that many even call themselves Anglicans. Like the Corinthians, they spiritualised the whole thing. For them, Jesus' body didn't rise, but his spirit rose. His body remained in the grave. For them, salvation is not the forgiveness of sins, and the sure and certain hope of being raised to eternal life. For them, salvation is having their consciousness raised. It's about rising to their full inner potential. It's mystical. It sounds spiritual, but it's absolute nonsense. Others will identify as Christians, at least culturally, and yet, like some Corinthians, they sin with their bodies. And they think that it makes no difference to God at all. God, they say, he's not interested in what we do with our bodies in the privacy of our own home. God only wants me to be happy, to be a good person on the inside. As long as I don't hurt anyone, I'm not doing anything wrong. Well, such statements and ideas are very common. 
across the broad spectrum of our culture. So much so that as Christians we imbibe them like oxygen. And in the end, if we don't challenge such nonsense, at least in our own lives, then we end up not simply denying our own sinfulness, but endorsing it as good. We'll even describe ourselves as spiritual, but not religious. We'll accept sin and vanity as normal and good, and we'll call it tolerance and inclusivity. But if there is a resurrection of the body, what we do with our bodies really matters now and into eternity. For just as we are created body, soul and spirit, so too are we redeemed body, soul and spirit. And one day we shall be resurrected body, soul and spirit. But there is another resurrection that we don't hear a lot about. And it's a resurrection that the, body, that the Bible speaks of very clearly. And it's the resurrection or the renewal of the created order. Just as all creation was marred and cursed at the fall, so too all creation will be redeemed and restored by the atoning work of Christ. As Paul says to the Romans, the whole natural world was spoilt and subjected to frustration and was in bondage and decay. And thus we see weeds and pests and disease and floods and drought and fire. But the day is coming when Christ will re-establish the kingdom of God and he'll put everything right. And on that day, we read in verse 24, Christ will hand over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all opposing dominion and authority and power. On that day, the last enemy to be destroyed will be death. On that day, Christ the King of the universe will restore the order of the universe, the order that was lost at the fall. And the fruits of his victory he will hand to his Father. Though everything then will be in submission under Christ, Jesus will in turn submit himself to the Father. And he will do this so that God may be all in all. Submission and equality are not oxymorons. So an understanding of the resurrection greatly expands our understanding of salvation. God is not just interested in us, body, soul and spirit. God is also interested in the whole created universe. Christ's resurrection is the guarantee of the restoration of all things. Our destiny is not a heavenly realm that bears no relation to the world in which we live. Our destiny is to a perfectly restored creation in which everything has been put right under the Lordship of Christ. In 1947, C.S. Lewis wrote a book called Miracles. And in commenting on the totality of what Christ's death on the cross has achieved, Lewis says this. He says, Christ has forced the door open that has been locked since the death of the first man. He has met, fought and beaten the king of death. 
Everything's different because he's done so. This is the beginning of the new creation. A, a new chapter in cosmic history has opened. And Lewis is right. The death and bodily resurrection of Jesus, well, it changes everything. The death and resurrection of Jesus is immeasurably important. So important that as Christians we hang our whole faith on the centrality of that historical and physical truth. If Christ has not been raised, then our faith is futile. We're still in our sins. We're still lost. If we hope in Christ only for this life, then we are more to be pitied than all men. Like Paul in the early church, we are absolutely sure of the resurrection. Hundreds of them knew it was true because they met the resurrected Christ. Thousands of them were so persuaded that they were prepared to die for that belief. So convinced were some in the early church that as Paul points out in verse 29, some were even baptised for the dead, confident that they would be raised to life. Now if you ask me, what's that about? My answer is I haven't got the faintest idea. There is no explanation that satisfies everyone. I can only surmise that it was happening, even though Paul didn't endorse it. Nonetheless, it was evidence that people really did believe in the resurrection of the body. Despite that, Paul is painfully aware that many questions remain unanswered. So he poses these questions rhetorically from verse 35, and he presents his sceptic as a scoffer. The questions are along the lines of how will the body be raised, and what will the resurrected body be like? Well, I'm not so curious about how the body will be raised, by the power of God, I expect. But I must confess I have wondered what it would be like to have the same body, but different. If Christ's resurrected body is a clue, then we know that after his resurrection he ate and he drank. We know that he was perfectly recognisable by those who saw him alive. And to me this is clear evidence of the physicality of life after death. Nonetheless, cynics will still scoff, but Paul thinks that such scoffing is foolish. The possibility of resurrection is not only guaranteed by the resurrection of Jesus, it's also verified by evidence in nature. So, for example, Paul argues, as does Jesus, that a seed will only bring forth life if it dies and is resurrected as a plant. As for our bodies being similar but different, Nature also makes it clear that animal bodies and heavenly bodies are not all the same. That there could be two different human bodies, both pre- and post-resurrection, shouldn't be too surprising. The body in which we live is now perishable. We know that so well. But it will be raised imperishable. Our body is sown in dishonour, but it will be raised in glory. Our body is sown in weakness, but it will be raised in power. Our body is sown naturally, but it will be raised supernaturally. Having once been born in Adam, 
We are reborn in Christ. Unless it was so, then we could not inherit the kingdom of God. And all this will happen, well, not when we die, but when Christ returns in glory. We shall be changed from the mortal to the immortal. It will all happen in the twinkle of an eye, in a flash, and at the last trumpet. And the last enemy to be destroyed will be death. As it is written, death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? Christ's resurrection is the ultimate victory over death. Death has now lost its sting because death is no longer the end. Resurrection guarantees that there will be no end. There was no such thing as death until sin entered the world and our lives. And the law did not solve the problem of sin and death. Sin actually gets its power from the law, from the Ten Commandments. Because prohibition makes forbidden fruit even more desirable. So let's not think that we can live our lives by the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments tell us something important and real about a holy God. But the Ten Commandments also shine a torch on our own sinfulness. And though the Ten Commandments reveal our unrighteousness, on their own they cannot make us righteous. On their own, they will only leave us guilty and condemned. And against such, we have no power. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And the victory is Christ's victory and not ours. We have no mastery over sin and we have no control over death. Christ alone has conquered sin at the cross and death at his resurrection. Our physical resurrection to eternal life is a victory won for us by our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, it is absolutely guaranteed. So with that sort of certainty, how then should we live? And Paul's answer is twofold. Firstly, he says in verse 58, stand firm and let nothing move you. Don't be put off by doubters or scoffers. Don't be put off by persecution or hardship or trial. But live by faith and not by sight. For there is nothing more certain than the resurrection and the return of Jesus. So stand firm and do not be moved. Secondly, Paul says, give yourself fully to the work of the Lord. Because nothing that you do for the Lord in this life will ever be in vain. If there is no life after death, if there is no resurrection, then whatever we do in this life, be it good or evil, it serves no eternal purpose. Even concepts of good and evil are largely meaningless. Without God, morality can have no basis beyond the animal instinct of self-interest. But if there is a resurrection, if there is a judgment day to come, if there is the promise of eternal life, if there is a reward for faithfulness, 
then everything that we do in this life, it matters. Every evil that we do will be judged, and every deed that we do in faith will be rewarded. So brothers and sisters, stand firm and hold fast to the teachings of the gospel. He who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming soon, even so, come Lord Jesus. Let us pray. And God and Father, we thank you that you have raised our Lord Jesus from death to life, and that in and through him you redeem all things. Forgive us when we live our lives as though the here and now are the only reality. When we live our lives not in boxes, but in the totality of all that you have created, redeemed and purposed us to be. Thank you for the hope of eternal life. May we give ourselves fully to faith and good works, confident that you reward us according to your faithfulness and that you shall return again in glory according to your promise. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.